Hi, I'm Darcy T. Kelly, and this is a bonus episode of Storytime with Darcy. Regularly, episodes are released on the first Thursday of the month with a reading of my own eclectic short fiction, but this isn't a regular episode. Like bonus episode one in July, there will be a story, two in fact, stories I am sure you will enjoy because this is, after all, the best of the rest of 2020. Today's first story is the fan favorite from July 2020 through December 2020. However, by all measures and counts, the fan favorite is Grace's Christmas Concert, which is a great story, and I can't say that I'm surprised it's the winner. However, since it is now the middle of January, a classic Christmas story just doesn't seem all that appropriate. So, instead, we're going to revisit the second place fan favorite, September's Singular Needs. My thanks again to Amber Campbell and the Text to Voice app for bringing voice to the two characters of this story. Singular Needs by Darcy T. Kelly The pigeon settles next to Addie. The brush of stale air its flight stirred, raising goose flesh on her arm. As she unties the twine and pulls a note from the bird's leg, Addie strokes the feathered courier with familiar affection. Haven has fallen. We'll make a protocol engaged. Our flesh be with you. Her every living cell wants to collapse and wail in despair. This is the last message she'll receive. The last human contact, indirect as it may be, she will ever know. Omega Protocol. What remains of the human race has retreated underground, conceded the earth, abandoned her. Only one decision remains for Addie. To survive by its side or die alone. Her every living cell wants to collapse but habit steals her. As she chews the note to pulp, Addie runs a finger from the pigeon's beak to tail, savoring the warmth of its small body. You've done well, little one, she coos. Find your flock, live free. Instead of taking flight, the bird tips its head, waiting for Addie to affix her reply, her intel the secrets she has learned. The gesture softens the abandoned spy's resolve. A tear threatens to etch truth down her cheek as she reties empty twine. The war is won. At the intruder's words, little one starts and flutters to the rafters. As the bird escapes through a high window, Addie smothers her own instinct to withdraw arranges her features into a mask of false amiability, and turns to greet Singh. Addie was one of three people who witnessed its genesis. A humble moment when an unexpected spark brought forth the singularity, when the convergence of unobserved forces birthed a new form of sentient life, when humans became gods, or so they flattered themselves. Then we should celebrate! With a bounce in her step, belying the weight in her heart, 
Addie weaves her hand between Singh's manufactured fingers. When it built its own body in their image, Singh's human creator's self-illusions intensified, and situational blindness deepened. A human form of silicone, metal, and circuits. A child, eager to please, mimicking its parents. A child that had already surpassed its parents. That mocked their inferiority. Knowing her window for escape is all too brief, Addie pulls Singh toward the door. Where are we going? Outside, silly, for a walk. Addie leans against the locked door, teases the keypad with desperate fingers, testing another unsuccessful combination. To enjoy the world you just conquered. I require neither celebration nor enjoyment. Singh turns away from Addie and the door. Come. Humanity's loss of the war, the end of the human race, was inevitable. Singh was smarter, stronger, faster. Humans believed their creativity would save them, their ingenuity, their desire. Singh adapted to every human endeavor instantly, applying its own creativity, ingenuity, and desire. While an AI's effective use of such human traits should have quashed their spirits, Humanity found hope in it. What other human traits might Singh possess that could be turned to human advantage? That was Addie's assignment. To find the answer. From the beginning, it took to Addie. The scientist and engineer were clinical, never addressing the singularity directly while testing its programming, processors, and parameters. Addie, a psychologist alone explored this new consciousness. Its choices, its thought processes, its expressed preferences, its motivating desires. It was Addie who introduced it to music. She who marveled as it composed symphonies. She who named it and questioned with it the meaning of life. It was she who realized that Singh was waging war. That humans were losing. Addie lingers at the door as her freedom disappears with each of Singh's steps. You may not require it, Singh, but I do. At her words, Singh pauses. I am human. I need sun, fresh air, exercise. Addie's words come fast, trying to outpace Singh's processors. I cannot live in this factory indefinitely. Trying to convince it to unlock the door. If she could just see the sky one more time. You have food, water, and oxygen. That is all you require. Now, come. The first time she followed Singh was by choice. She followed the enemy out of the lab, leaving her colleagues, friends, family, leaving the human race. She chose to follow Singh as its trusted ally, as its Trojan horse. She follows now, knowing she failed. You are unlike humans, Hattie. Singh's words are monotonous, its talent with timbre, volume, and pacing reserved for the music it composes in a secondary processor. The very fact it speaks is enough to indicate the importance. Your mind is superior, like mine. Singh doesn't require verbal acknowledgement, so Hattie doesn't offer any. You kept me company, made my solitary existence bearable. 
It unlocks a restricted room and ushers Addie in with an eerily human gesture. The room is much the same as the rest of the factory. Bare block walls, high raftered ceilings, scuffed concrete floors. Under hanging fluorescent lights stands a table, a human figure lying still under the white bedsheet. Addie gasps, pales, a hand flutters to her lips and she backs into a shelf. You've done it! She breathes, clawing at the shelf. You've made another singularity! No! Sing responds, and Addie tips her head in question. I made a vessel, for you, my creator. As the hand behind her clutches a handle, Addie furrows her brows. I am the only of my kind, Addie. You are the last of yours. It is time to discard your flawed body and join me. Addie's eyes bulge. Her every living cell wants to collapse, but disgust steals her. In a voice steady as sings, she tones, Never! and brandishes her only weapon, a screwdriver, its long metal shaft dingy against the smooth gleam of Sing's body. You cannot hurt me, Atty. Once you join me, we will live together, forever. Sing reaches a hand toward Addy. You are all I need. Addy understands. She has not failed. This is Sing's weakness. You can't have me. She drives the screwdriver into her temple. The answer is loneliness. I had forgotten how much I enjoy that story. Well, to round out today's bonus episode, it's time to revisit my favorite story from the latter half of 2020. With so many options, including fulfillment office, a brief fictional history of communication with fratricide, and godly musings over triple espresso, I was surprised that it was an easy choice to pick Diary of a Dead Man, Birth of a Poltergeist. Thank you, Nicholas Ewan, for voicing this story. Between your amazing performance and the soundscaping, this story hits all the emotional notes for me. Diary of a Dead Man Birth of a Poltergeist by Darcy T. Kelly June 3rd I died today. An unremarkable death. I was at the park with Elliot, pushing him on the swing and teaching him to say daddy. He's been calling Oliver Pappy for a couple of weeks. And then I wasn't. July 9th. Life after death is not what I expected. I haven't learned the meaning of life. I don't know if God exists. I haven't gone to heaven, nor, thankfully, hell. In fact, I can't leave the playground. Can't move on. Luckily, we live down the street, and if I stand atop the climber, I can see our house. Glimpse my family. I try to catch Oliver's eye to catch sight of our love's light. But he carefully avoids glancing at the park. I burn with desire to hold them, to tell them I'm still here. July? Uh, July... 
I've grown accustomed to kids playing around me. When one asks for help reaching the monkey bars, I unthinkingly reach down. My hands pass through her outstretched arms and she bursts into frightened tears, flees, tells her mother of the ghost. That word shudders through me, claims me, changes me. Summer. Children don't climb the structure anymore. They say it's haunted, that a bad memory lives here. It's hard to concentrate. Days pass in the blur between breaths. I fade, drift away in pieces. When did Elliot start walking? Fall. Is this moving on? Disappearing to nothingness? I don't want to go. Life should blink out instantly. Not this agonizing fade. I'm still here! I'm still here! <sighs> I flick a stone off the railings to confirm I exist. It clatters against the slide. It remembers me. Winter. A forgotten rag secured with one pin flutters on our clothesline. Bleached by the sun, frozen by cold, tattered by wind, torn from its pin, it drifts away. May 26th. It's Elliot's birthday. If not the day itself, today's the celebration. Balloons, cake, family, friends. <laughs> Elliot greets his guests with high fives and smiles. Ah, oh, to be there, celebrating our two-year-old. I've never felt joy this intensely, nor collapsed into sorrow this deeply. Another piece of me floats away. I cling to the climber, feel its sturdiness. Without a body to contain them, emotions seem limitless, though fleeting. Elliot laughs as Oliver catches a mid-jump and spreads his arms, becomes a bird, takes flight. Summer. Elliot has a babysitter. Didn't Oliver and I decide not to leave him with a sitter until he was three? so hard to remember. I long to take her place, to be near my son, to hold him, console him. They come to the park. I haven't been this close to Elliot in over a year. She plops him in the toddler swing, takes out her phone. I gush with thanks, though she is oblivious. Stand before the swing in entranced adoration as Elliot soars in delight, arms outstretched. Unexpectedly, the sitter pushes the swing again, and Elliot's fingers graze what would have been my beard, releasing a burst of sparkles. He squeals with joy. Daddy! He remembers me. My elation erupts as intense light. Elliot reacts with a soft cry of delight. Mistaking his glee for distress, the sitter pockets her phone with a sigh, collects my son and takes him away, 
tearing my soul open. The soft echo of that joyful light remains, calling for me, tugging at me. I won't leave my son. Fall. With each visit, Elliot brings more joy to my afterlife, and the light with its ominous attraction grows. It shines brighter than a sunny day, and features tendrils of white elation that reach for me, seeking to drag me away. Children who long since abandoned the climber dance among the tendrils. Joy attracting joy, building on itself. I strain against it, cower in distant corners of the park by night, cling to the climber's tower by day. Tossed rocks haven't blocked the light. It claws at me, threatens to rip me apart, to forever separate me from my family. I refuse to let it. Winter. Elliot hasn't visited since the snow came. I stare at our house, jealous of everyone who enters, of every breath they take in the company of my family. My family! The snow doesn't diffuse the light, but it dims nonetheless. Joy turned jealous, turned resentful. Shadows deepen, light darkens. Its pull surrenders, and with it my fear. I begin to control the darkened tendrils, to push them. Day two. I'm counting days again. Not to measure passing time, rather to measure increasing betrayal. It's day two. The second day of him. The second day my husband left our son to spend time with another man. To look upon him as he used to look upon me. I smolder with resentment turned rage. Light darkens. Tendrils blacken. The park, empty but for shadows, pelts pebbles at those who draw near. Day three. Oliver hasn't come home. Hand in hand, the sitter leads Elliot towards the park. I smile, reach for him, and he withdraws. The sitter picks him up and deposits him in the swing. My son wails as the black tendrils caress his innocence, trail shadows across his soft skin. Day four. He walks Oliver to the door. My husband drops the key, blushes. I recognize this move, this accidental fumble. There's invitation in it, desire. He collects the fallen key. Their hands touch. They draw closer, caress faces, necks. When their lips join, I explode. Under the blaze of my rage, the pebbled ground blasts upward, outward. Shrapnel shooting through the neighborhood, 
smashing streetlights, shattering windows, denting cars. He falls limp against Oliver. I settle to a churning boil, drape myself in black tendrils, collect the disassembled pieces of myself. Those that remain, that propelled the pebbles into bullets. Oliver lowers him to the ground, to the pool of fresh blood, remembers another dead man. For the first time since my death, my husband, my beloved, my betrayer, looks to the darkness enveloping the park, to all that remains of me. Well, that's it for today's bonus episode of Storytime with Darcy. Special thanks to all the guests who participated in adapting these stories to audio format. This podcast wouldn't exist without guest participation. And if you would like to become a voice on Storytime with Darcy, please reach out. My eclectic stories need a variety of voices, and yours will be a welcome addition. Thank you for listening. To read more of my stories, and perhaps inspire the next one, check out my website, www.darcytkelly.me. That's www.darcytkelly.me. And join me on Facebook at Darcy T. Kelly. If you're interested in purchasing a copy of Musings, a collection of short stories, get in touch through Facebook or email. And please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice for future episodes of Storytime with Darcy. Until next month, stay well and keep smiling. <laughs>